Good morning. Good to see everybody in the house of the Lord. We have been, as you know, in chapter 6, Jesus has been teaching us, his disciples, how to pray. And he's teaching us in what has become known as the Lord's Prayer. And this morning, we are going to concentrate on just one verse, and that is verse 11. And in this prayer, he teaches us to petition God in this way. Give us this day our daily bread. The first, this is the the fourth petition in this prayer. And you will recall that the first three petitions were very spiritually minded. They they concentrated on focusing on God as, uh, as fatherhood and God whose name is holy and hallowed and this God who has a kingdom and the king of this kingdom has a will and our, our minds and hearts are lifted to the heavens almost like watching balloons filled with helium just rise higher and higher. And then we come to this fourth petition and it takes us back down to earth and it's almost like the air was let out of the balloons and now we're out of the spiritual realm and we're petitioning God for something physical. Now we're just talking about food, something to eat, bread, something to put on our plates. And it almost seems out of place here when you can be lifted so high spiritually and then brought crashing down on the ground. Oh, and um, hallowed father with this incredible kingdom and will. Can I have something to eat today? It almost seems out of place. In fact, Third century church father Origen thought that surely the Lord isn't teaching us to pray for literal bread and concentrate on our appetites. He must be talking about uh, spiritual bread. It must be a, a metaphor for the spiritual bread. And then fourth century church father Jerome kind of said the same thing. I think he's talking about the bread of the word becoming flesh. He's talking about the bread that we use in communion. And as a result of that, uh, there were some churches that practiced, took communion every day because they thought Jesus was teaching them to partake of the bread of communion on a daily basis. And so people throughout the ages have wrestled with this part of the prayer because it just seems so mundane. They couldn't bring themselves to believe that God would really care that much about what we eat. Or how we eat. Of course, today we might hear something to the effect of of, uh, how could we possibly think about our stomachs when souls are going to hell? Just seems like something isn't right with that. I mean, after all, isn't the soul and the spirit what is the most important thing about our lives with God and Isn't that why we're here? Well, yeah, our souls are very, very important and need to be well cared for and need to be saved, as we sung about this morning. It does not benefit a person to concentrate on their bodies and forfeit their souls and not make it into the king's kingdom of heaven. But God created us as spiritual beings and physical beings. And that's what humanity is. And the body and the soul are inextricable. And God in Genesis reached down and picked up some clay and formed and fashioned man physically. And then he breathed into him the spirit of life. And he became a living spiritual being. And so man is is body and soul. And both are important to God. Yes, God cares about our bodies. He cares about physical sustenance. Jesus became man. Jesus took on flesh. We are to be like Jesus. Jesus maintains his flesh as he sits at the right hand of the Father in the heavens. The the body is a good thing. When we're saved, he saves us body and soul. We're being sanctified body and soul. And the day will come, we'll be glorified body and soul. It's it's a kit. That's what it means to be truly human. The body is not abandoned or uncared for. 
And some people look at the passage in 1 Timothy chapter 4, where the apostle says, Have nothing to do with irreverent, silly myths. Rather, train yourself for godliness. For while bodily training is of some value, godliness is of value in every way, as it holds promise for the present life and also for the life to come. And so we read that and we think, forget about the body. I'm just going to feed my spirit. I'm going to spend my life nurturing my spirit. It's okay if my body wastes away. And that's not Paul's point here. As a matter of fact, can you be godly without a body to be godly with? Can we be the hands and feet of Christ? Can we even obey Christ in godliness without a body to obey him with? Can we proclaim the gospel if we are not healthy enough to speak? Can we take the gospel to the ends of the earth when we can't uh, we can only go about 100 feet before we got to take a 20 minute break? Paul's point in this is not that we should abandon the body and not care about the body as if it's something that gets in the way. Paul's point is that it has its limitations. You don't want to try to make the body the spirit or the spirit the body. They both serve different parts of the whole package of who God desires us to be. So, yeah, we can... Uh, it doesn't matter how healthy or fit you are. You, you can eat a vegetable plate every day and work out every day. And that's not going to get you into heaven. No matter what your cholesterol or blood count is. That's not going to get you into heaven. So the, the, the soul needs to be there. But we need to care for our bodies. In other words, yeah, Jesus cares. He is telling us to pray for physical sustenance. He knows we need it. That's why in... Um, in schools, you have free lunch programs because kids come into school and they're, they're starving, they're malnourished, and they can't concentrate on their history lessons or learn grammar when, when all they can think about is the food they smell on the way to school. So the idea is let's, let's get them some nutrition, then we can teach them and train them. And there's, that's truth also for the gospel and training in godliness. I think the best way to learn about this prayer is to take, take it almost word by word, sometimes word for word or phrase by phrase. And just, and just think about what, is, what are we learning by this. And if we do that, we find that the very first word in the petition is give. What does the word give teach us? Well, it reminds us that when we're asking of God or petitioning of God, what we're really asking for is is a gift. And that to even ask for something to eat on a daily basis, we are asking for a gift from the gift giver. And to have anything to eat means that we have been given a gift from Almighty God. He gives it to us. And I remember as a new believer kind of struggling with this, this whole thing of how do we interact with God? How do we trust Him? And what things do we really depend on him for and give him the credit for? Because I thought, you know, it does seem kind of trivial to pray and ask God for something to eat when, you know, quite frankly, I can just drive up to the drive through window and order a burger. Or walk into Food Lion and get all the groceries I can afford. I mean, it's just so readily available. There. There's so much in our culture that is so accessible. What does God have to do with it? And, I mean, I'm the one that worked for the money to buy the food anyway. Um, the more harder I work, the more I make, the better I eat. You know how that goes. So, really, what is, what is Jesus getting at in this? What's the benefit of it? Why do we even have to ask God for something that we can just go and get ourselves? The idea behind it is that when you really look at the big picture or the bottom line, whatever angle, is that anything that we have one way or another has been a gift to God from God. So for, for me to even have the skills or ability or the health or the presence of mind to be able to work, to, to have secured a job, to have the skills and the talents, these things 
are gifts from God that he uses to enable us to provide for ourselves. In some cases, we're not all dependent on others. But it's just another means of providing for us rather than literally praying and magically a meal shows up at the dinner table. Because by faith every day we pray for our food. God provides us with the means to gather our own sustenance. It's all grace. So God is very much involved in that process and the fact that we can go to the grocery store or the drive through window and have something to eat. It's all the fact that we are so incredibly blessed in our culture with all of this sustenance. It's God's grace to us because he is a good, good gift giver. Yeah, it's a, it's a joint effort in, in a sense. But I could not do anything without the grace of God. On the other hand, we can dishonor God in these ways. We can dishonor God by not using the skills and abilities that he has given us as gifts to provide for ourselves. We can dishonor God by being lazy. Matter of fact, Scripture frowns at laziness. And the apostle tells one church, I think in the Thessalonians, if a man doesn't work, he shouldn't eat. You just, if you've got the ability, if God has given you the ability, and not everybody does, and God knows that. But with the gifts that he's given us, we are to use them to feed ourselves and, when possible, to feed others. So it dishonors God to say, well, I'm going to have great faith in God's provision and do nothing and let him do all the work, so to speak, and... I'm waiting for a knock on the door for my Thanksgiving dinner. And it also dishonors God to be greedy. And that should touch a nerve in our culture. Because our tendency in the American way has, in part, has become to pray for our greed instead of our need. And God provides. We say, wow, that's wonderful. I wonder if I could have this. And could I have this as well? And we begin... Placing orders. And God doesn't always give us a menu to choose from. What would you eat like to eat today? Although I was quite impressed at last night's purity ball that was held here. That we were given a menu of all things. Of options of delicious foods to eat. Which was, was awesome. Appreciate that. But God doesn't always give us a menu. What would you like with that? Cream? Sugar in your coffee. But he does provide. And we don't want to turn God's provision and his generosity into an opportunity for us to be greedy and just ask him for anything we can get. Because that's not good. Let's not make our, uh, our, our need turn into greed. But be grateful for whatever we have. And in a culture such as ours... We should be thanking God really a whole lot more than we're asking things of God. Because of the abundance, the overflow of abundance that we enjoy in our culture. We should be the most grateful people if we are the richest, wealthiest nation on the earth. Should we not be also the most grateful nation on the earth? So just that first word, give, brings us into the... The reality that God, everything we have, it's been a gift. Transportation, food, our daily needs. And then the second word is us. And it's that, that powerful little word that reminds us this is a family prayer. It's, it's a prayer for the family of God. And yes, you go into your prayer closet and it's just you and the Lord. But when you're praying, you're not just praying, God, I want and I need, but... We all need this. My brothers and sisters in Christ need sustenance. Not even, not just in this body, but around the globe. The saints of God. We want to pray that they also would be provided for. There are places in this world that our brothers and sisters in Christ have been uprooted. And there are starving believers. And we're praying for them. For God's sustenance. We, we care. So it's not like, Lord, 
May I, I pray for my daily bread and I receive it and then my job is done because there are still others that need a meal or that need their daily sustenance. So that little powerful word keeps us from being self-centered. And it draws our attention to perhaps those that do not have. So what can we do about those that do not have? Well, Jesus says you can pray for them. Pray, give us our, us and our daily bread. And prayer's kind of been under attack of late, has it not? Does prayer really even work? Well, Jesus apparently think it's, thinks it does because he's telling every disciple, past, present, and future, yes, you are to pray. It does work. It works because hunger is a spiritual problem, not just a physical problem. This is a little bit of a tangent, but I can't resist just because recently talking about does prayer work after the tragedy of the, the Texas church massacre, some celebrities and different people were challenging prayer and basically saying, we don't, they don't need your prayers because people were saying, my, my prayers are with you. They don't need your prayers. If, if, if prayer worked, this would have never happened in the first place. What we need is gun control laws. That's what we need. That's the answer. That's the remedy. That riled me up a little bit. Because it is a spiritual problem. Hunger is a spiritual problem. Murder is a spiritual problem. It needs to be addressed in a spiritual way. But that's a tangent. But hunger, why is it a spiritual problem? Well, we are often told that there's not enough food in this world. Well, we're told there are too many people in this world. We're, we're overpopulated and something's going to happen. We're going to have to get rid of some sooner or later because there's just too many or we need to do abortions or we need to limit how many people are born. Different, different methods and modes. And that's what we're often taught. The reality of the fact is our world, God has created in such a way that we can produce way more food than we could possibly ever use. And that's just a, a scientific fact then why are people hungry? Then why are people starving? It's a spiritual problem. It's because of sin. It's because of greed. It's because of mismanagement. It's because of bad government. Those are spiritual things. It's because of what people believe, worldviews. Take the Koreas that have been in the news ad nauseum of late, where you have... The same kind of people, same, same location, same climate, same soil. Over on this side of the wall, you have people impoverished and starving. And on this side of the line, you have people thriving. What's wrong? Is the soil no good over there? No, it's bad, it's bad management. It's bad government. <laughs> and just read recently where some guy happened to escape from North Korea... And he's, he's malnourished and full of parasites. They're pulling parasites out of the poor guy. You, you see, it's a spiritual problem between light and darkness. It's not just physical. You can't just throw physical things. You could use the same example between Haiti and the Dominican Republic. Same climate, same atmosphere, bad management, bad beliefs. It really matters. So does prayer work? Yes, prayer works. And we can be praying for these kind of things, breakthroughs, spiritual breakthroughs. What people believe, how they manage what they're given makes a difference. And you get somebody bad in power, they take it all. You know, Christian aid and, and charitable aid is often confiscated and never even reaches the people that need it. That's called a spiritual problem. But God has blessed us with plenty of resource. So we want to pray, but is prayer enough? No. Prayer alone is part. But as James, James reminds us in chapter 2, we, we can't just send people off with a little blessing that show up at our doorstep. They're freezing. They don't have a winter jacket and they're hungry. God be with you. May his spirit warm you. Have a good day. He says... Without giving them the things they needed for the body. What good is that blessing to them? 
Yes, so we need boots on the ground. We, we need the practical giving, the actual putting things in people's hands part of it. God gives physical bread, but it's a matter of spiritual obedience to the Lord. Any way that we look at it. And by the way, as you well know, this year has been a hard year for our nation. I know really in the whole world in different ways. But for our nation, we have had quite a few, uh, more than usual, more than in a long time, natural disasters. I mean, we've had tornadoes. We've had hurricanes. We've had earthquakes. We had wildfires. I'm probably missing something. Floods. I mean, it just seems like. Every couple of weeks we're hearing about people, homes are being devastated, communities are being devastated, wiped out. And in some cases, yes, lives are being lost. And what do we often see or who are people reaching out for for relief? Well, according to the media, the government, everybody's wondering, is the government going to help me or not? We still don't have water. We don't have power. What's the government going to do to relieve the situation? And. From that perspective, you would never even know that there was anything else that you could turn to. But you know who the government turns to in, in crises like this? Charities. You know, we get the impression that little charities help out in any little way they can, the government and FEMA. You know what happens in real life? FEMA comes alongside and helps out the charities. Why? Because they're already established. They're better managed. They're closer. They're involved. I read an article in USA Today in September about this. About 80% of all recovery happens because of nonprofits, and the majority of them are faith based. Would you know that from our social media? That 80% of the help that our people in our nation are receiving is. Almost 80% faith-based, the majority faith-based, that means Christ. That means answered prayer to these things. That means believers caring about those that need their daily bread. Not recognized. If you donate, if you donate bottles, the article goes on to say, if you do, donate bottles of water, diapers, clothing of any other materials to hurricane victims, victims in Texas or Florida, your donation will likely pass through the hands of the Seventh-day Adventists before it gets to a storm victim. Likewise, the United Methodist Committee on Relief is known for its expertise in case management. After the initial cleanup, where the Methodists have work crews helping pull mud out of houses. The church sends trained volunteers into the wreckage to help families navigate the maze of FEMA assistance. State aid, pro, uh, aid programs, private insurance to help them rebuild their lives. Samaritan's Purse, an evangelical aid group run by Reverend Franklin Graham, has trucks at the ready in Florida with chainsaws and debris removal experts to help clean up homes. After initial cleanup, the group is contracting services available to help the needy rebuild their homes. The crews come with more than just chainsaws. They have a person who is a designated listener so that... So that person can sit down and be an ear for somebody if the home owner needs that. Incredible. The, the, the Spirit of God, the body of Christ, is incredibly involved in the happenings of our nation. So no, we can't just say, go in peace. Go in peace. We need to do what's in our power to help. Makes me... All the more grateful for our missions committee that has that responsibility and bears that burden when we tithe and we bring our donations. And then we are are solicited for help. People need help paying bills and they need heat for the cold winter months coming and food. And so when I get a call, I happily hand the phone number and the name contact information to somebody in the missions committee. They pray for it to try to stretch every penny. I think it was just this year that this church played a huge part in getting the Castle family, whose home was burned, back up on their feet. Prayer and practical giving is God's plan. Basil the Great in uh, the 300s A.D., he said, The bread that is spoiling in your house belongs to the hungry. The shoes that are mildewing under your bed belong to those who have none. 
The clothes stored away in your trunk belong to those who are naked. That's the Christian way. That's Christian discipleship. Give us what's next this day. That's a reminder every day of our dependence on God. We need God's gifts every day. And he taught this lesson to the Israelites in the wilderness, did he not? When he redeemed them from Egypt, he, he's, they're on their way to the promised land. They got some lessons to learn. Now, the, the uh, abundance of food that was in Egypt is not in the wilderness. It's, it's desolate. And what are you going to do? You got dads with their families there. They need something to eat. Dad, I'm hungry. What am I going to do? Son, I know the, the skills that, that I could use in Egypt to put food on the table for you guys. I, my skills don't do any good out here. We're going to have to trust in God. So God sent manna to the Israelites for their daily bread. And isn't it interesting that the manna was not a week's worth of food. It was one day at a time. As a matter of fact, if you tried to hoard, if you tried to get two days worth out of it, that manna that you skimmed off the ground rotted. He wouldn't let you. What's the lesson? Ultimately, it comes from God. Every day, what you have. And their tendency was to trust in their own ability or to trust in the resources that they had. Instead of trusting in the God of the resources. And our little sinful, tricky hearts can easily make that transition and we may not even know it. And we find ourselves trusting in our resources. Trusting in what we have instead of trusting in the God of the resources. And that's a powerful lesson. Because yes, we would, some of us, many of us would rather trust in what we stockpiled. This is a stockpiling country. That's how, we, that's how we get our security. Stockpile. It's the American way. Stockpile our provisions. If I get enough, a little bit more, less worrying. A little bit more, I won't have to worry about next month. And the bills that are going to come in. A little bit more, I won't even have to. I got all next year covered. And we think that by stockpiling... Our problems are over. That's our security. What could possibly go wrong? And Jesus actually told a parable in Luke chapter 12 about that. And there was a guy who thought the same way. And so he stockpiled and grain came in, great harvest. He said, wow, man, that's going to carry me for a long time, but I need a little more. So he built another barn and he planted more and he built another barn and he's got stockpiled. Matter of fact, he is set for life, he thinks. I'm set for life. I don't have a care in the world. Anything can come my way and I'm ready for it. All my security is right there in those barns. And what happened to him? He died. Didn't do him any good. And he didn't just die. He died impoverished of soul. He didn't take care of his soul. Why? He was trusting in his stockpile. He didn't trust in God. What does Jesus call that individual Oh, that's just foolish to, to think that way. It's foolish to trust in that stockpile. You don't know what that's, how long that's going to be last, last, and you don't know how long you're going to last. Put your faith in God. It's part of this prayer when we say, this day. I need you this day. Yeah, I've got this and I've got that, but what I need is you. I'm looking to you, God. The only reason I have these things is because of you. So you think, oh, well, so then I just need to get rid of everything and trust the Lord, right? Uh, do, do the minimalist thing. I got one set of shoes, one pair of underwear, one pair of clothes. I got, I got uh, just enough food for one day at a time. Is that the idea? So I'll trust God? Well, I mean, maybe if you want to do that. And maybe there's a time for fasting material things so we can sh- sh- prove to ourselves that we are trusting in God. But... That's sometimes we go overboard because the Bible also says, as you're trusting in God, plan for the future. Don't be foolish. Don't take all the grain out of your barn and say, nope, I'm trusting in God. Burn it. No. 
We want to plan for the future. We want to be wise. We want to be smart. And that's why um, uh, was in Proverbs chapter 13. A good man leaves an inheritance to his children's children. That's a lot of stockpiling. If I'm going to do that, I got to have some money, gold or something, right? And it's, that's a good man that's able to do that. It's not that he's trusting in it, but he's planned. It's planned. I want my, my grandkids to have that education or that, that Christian education. And even their children. Let's make sure they're taken care of. At least they have that opportunity. The Bible says that's wise. Why is the woman in Proverbs 31 praise? Because she planned ahead. Winter's coming. She's ready for it. She got some yarn. She has the coats, everything stockpiled. It's already there for when you need it. She has the food too. She's not worried about it. As a matter of fact, she has extra. So when the hungry come and when those who are cold, I've got some for you. My family's taken care of. I got some for you. That's called smart. But it's not trusting in the resources. It's being a disciple of Christ, not being a burden to others by saying, no, I'm going to sit here and trust God. But could you give me something to eat and being a burden to others because I'm refusing to work under the guise of faith? It's providing for myself and more. If the Lord provides, give us this day. And then lastly, our daily bread. Daily bread. The idea is not literally uh, we have to eat bread every day. Um, in that culture, bread was the staple. Grain. I mean, you did need that grain every day or you didn't eat. Um, so breads were wonderful. As a matter of fact, to this very day in the holy city, there is bread. They still depend on it and it is delicious bread. I have had the opportunity to be there and the ladies roll their little carts into the city and they sell bread early in the morning freshly baked because they've been up early early before daybreak cooking it and it just the whole aroma for that that little time is fresh baked different breads my favorite food over there there's a lot of weird stuff i didn't like but i loved the breads over there so for us it could be you know our daily bread whatever it is your cheerios which is a grain. Well, say your hot wings. That's not a grain. It's me. Our, our daily portion of hot wings. Whatever your, your, your plate of vegetables, your tofu, whatever it is that you need for your sustenance. It's a daily basis. But we are praying. This is very important. Every day we should be praying for the portion of sustenance. That draws us closer to God, not pulls us away. Every day we have we have to hold our hearts in check and pray for the portion, oh God, that will draw me closer to you. The meal, the transportation, the job that will draw me closer to you and not pull me away. Paul said in First Timothy six eight. If we have food and clothing with these, we will be content. God's our Heavenly Father. He's not going to forget about us. I mean, when, when, when I brought my kids to different places, if we were going to be away from the house or in the mountains away from fast food or, or the grocery store, we packed a little lunch, little snacks, whatever. God knows what we need. He's not going to leave us abandoned. Remember, He is our Heavenly Father. He knows, and we can ask Him. He provides the staples of life. We close with an illustration of this by the great 20th century Bible teacher, Harry Ironside. He tells a story. It's a story about a, a man, a story about how a man was able to see that God meets all of our needs. It concerned a pious old Scottish traveler who was traveling to a worship conference in Aberdeen. Along the way, he meets a young seminary student. The two men meet and they sit down for lunch together, both traveling in the same direction. The old man suggested that they pray to ask God for what they needed. 
young man was somewhat embarrassed by the suggestion, but to be polite, he allowed his elder to pray. The old man had three requests. First, as he was hard of hearing, he asked God for a seat near the front of the church when they arrived at this conference. Second, he reminded the Lord that he was badly in need of new shoes, but he did not have the money to pay for them. And finally, in his prayer, he asked the Lord for a bed to sleep in that night. He did not have any arrangements. The old man not only prayed for these things, but he thanked God in advance for providing them. The seminary student was so appalled by the impertinence of making such specific requests that he determined to find out what became of the old man's prayers. The men arrived late to the meeting and there was not a seat to be found. The old man stood at the back of the church with his hand cupped to his ear, straining to hear. While the student thought to himself, we'll see what becomes of his list of prayers. Well, just then a young lady in the front row happened to notice the old man and called for an usher, sir. My father asked me to save the seat for him, saying that if I should be late, give it to another. He's evidently detained. Would you please go to the back and get the intention of that elderly man straining to hear and bring him up here so he can have my seat? There he went. Within moments, the man's first request had been answered. Before long, it came time to pray. And when the old man knelt to say his prayers, the young woman noticed that his shoes were worn completely through. And now the woman's father happened to be uh, a cobbler. So immediately after the service, she asked the man if she could take him to her father's shop and give him a pair of shoes, which she did. And while in the shop making conversation, the woman asked where the man was staying that night. He said, uh, the Lord has not shown me yet. And she said, uh, Reverend Dr. So-and-so was actually to be our guest tonight. He was supposed to come to this conference, but he was not able to make it. Uh, would you like to stay with us? Well, the next day at the conference, a seminary student found the old man and he asked him how he made out. And the man showed him his new shoes, told him how the Lord answered his prayer for a place to stay. The young buck learned that day that when God's children pray for daily bread, God grants them the basics of life. Now, I began this sermon bringing us out of the spiritual realm back down into earth. But I want to just close by bringing us back into the spiritual realm. I really like the scripture that Shane shared with us this morning. Even the Old Testament tell of God's uh, tell the good news daily of God's salvation. Jesus, when he fed the 5,000, you'll remember, I think it was in John chapter 6. They really liked that. All the people were there. They were probably hungry. And they just saw this miracle as he multiplied the bread and the fishes. And uh, they said to Jesus in 634, Lord, always give us this bread. They wanted on Jesus' meal plan. That's a 24-7 thing. Man, I'm, I'm with him. Ah, say goodbye to hunger pains. But Jesus said, Truly, I say to you, you seek me not because you saw signs, but because you ate the loaves and were filled. Do not work for the food which perishes, but for the food which endures to eternal life, which the Son of Man will give you, for on him the Father God has set his seal. He says, I'm the bread of life. He who comes to me will not hunger, and he who believes in me will never thirst. You know, the good feeling of when you are absolutely famished and you sit down for a delicious meal. That's one of the best feelings in the world. And Jesus is saying, goes deeper than that. That your soul has a thirst and a hunger. And it's just going to keep starving itself and be malnourished until you embrace me as your Lord and Savior. I am what you need. I am the bread of life. Perhaps there are some here this morning that can relate with that. And I pray that you would daily place your faith in Christ. And see him as the king and your heavenly father. 
And what a beautiful thing when someone satisfies the thirst of their soul by embracing Christ in salvation. As a matter of fact, there is somebody here this morning that has done just that. And would like to come and give a testimony of his salvation. John Rosima. Good morning. Uh, thank you, Pastor Paul, for allowing me to share my story this morning. Sometime late last year, <coughs> it dawned on me that 2017 would be the year in which I will celebrate 40 years of being a Christian, November 19, to be precise. I also thought of sharing with you how I became a believer. Obviously, that could only take place on a Sunday. If November 19 had fallen on any other day of the week, I would not be telling you my story. Now, could it be that the Lord orchestrated November 19 to fall on a Sunday? I asked Shane that we sing the song, Came to My Rescue. Thank you, Shane. This song has special meaning for me. Because exactly 40 years ago today, at the stroke of midnight, I called God, and he answered. In fact, God did so much more than answering my plea to come to my rescue. I grew up in a non-Christian home, even though my parents weren't believers. As a young boy, I believed that there had to be a God. But that's as far as it went. Fast forward to the war in Vietnam. In the heat of a battle, surrounded by two communist North Vietnamese Army infantry battalions, I was curled up in a little tiny foxhole behind a machine gun with my finger glued to the trigger. Bullets and chunks of shrapnel flew inches from my head. Hundreds of exploding rockets, mortars, and other incendiary devices rained down in and around our little outpost. Thoroughly convinced that I was going to die that night, I cried out to God to save me. God, if you're real, please save me, I begged. How can you let this happen to me? Separate us from my family by thousands of miles. Why are you letting me die tonight? I don't think it's fair that I should die at such a young age. I haven't done much with my life. In fact, I have yet to discover what life is all about, and now it's coming to an end. God, I promise, if you let me live, I'll do better. I'll do something constructive with my life, if only you let me live. Five weeks later, I completed my military service obligation and was discharged from the Army. By then, I had already forgotten God. However, I hadn't forgotten my promise uh, on that fateful night in my foxhole to do something meaningful with my life. After the war, I returned to school under the GI Bill and attended Pasadena City College in Southern California. While there, I was often confronted by many young, barefooted, long-haired Jesus freaks, as we called them in those days, asking me if I knew Jesus and would I be willing to accept him in my heart. Shamefully, my response was always, not today. This didn't happen once or twice. It happened a dozen times. After my graduation, I transferred to Cal Poly in San Luis Obispo. And who do I run into there? You guessed it, young, barefooted, long-haired Jesus freaks wearing their John Lennon sunglasses, asking the proverbial, asking the proverbial question, John, do you know Jesus? And are you willing to accept him into your heart? Annoyed, my answer was, as always, not today. The GI Bill pays only for three years of college tuition, and after three years of school, being broke, 
I decided not to continue my studies and <coughs> ended up in the Army a second time. After completing boot camp again, I was shipped off to Stuttgart, Germany. After my arrival overseas, I became good friends with a young soldier from Romeoville, Illinois, who wouldn't stop telling me about Jesus. But all his efforts to convince me went nowhere. To this day, after more than 41 years, we are still the best of friends. One day, Eleanor Skinner, an Air Force colonel, approached me. I could tell by her facial expression that she was going to rebuke me, or as we say in the Army, chew me out. Staff Sergeant Rosima, she said, in an almost loud tone of voice. I quickly approached her, stood at attention, and said, yes, ma'am. Pointing her finger at my face, she asked, do you know what you need in your life? To which I responded by saying, no, ma'am. She then said, you need Jesus Christ. Do you understand that, Staff Sergeant Rosima? <laughs> I didn't say it, but my heart's immediate response was, not today. Early one morning, while driving to work, I heard an army chaplain on the Armed Forces Radio Network. <laughs> Sorry. Early one morning while driving to work. I heard an army chaplain on the Armed Forces Radio Network telling his audience, Surrender your heart to Jesus today. Stop struggling so much. Don't waste a minute. Do it now. This time, my heart's response was, Not today, Lord. The chaplain interrupted. No, just a minute. Before I had finished uttering Lord... The chaplain interrupted. <clears throat> he said, I know what you're saying. You're saying, not today, Lord. I believe that there is a limit to God's patience. And I also believe that his patience with me was very thin. Because I steadfastly refused him, God chose to use a different approach. He planned to bring me to the depths of despair and to the very end of my life. One bitterly cold November night in 1977, November 19 to be exact, <clears throat> I, along with several of my friends, attended a rock concert near Stuttgart. We frequently traveled from one concert to the next to see all the big names in pop rock culture from the 60s and 70s. After the concert, my friend drove me home and dropped me off at my apartment. As usual, we had a great time. Nothing out of the ornate took place that evening until I stepped out of my friend's VW bug and climbed the marble stairs to my apartment on the third floor. My friends who were with me that evening will tell you that they detected nothing about me that might have caused alarm. For no apparent reason, I felt such a heavy load on my shoulders that climbing those five short flights of stairs seemed impossible. Suddenly, all my strength was gone. I didn't know what was happening. When I finally made it to the third floor, and as I entered my apartment, I felt as if I had reached the very end of my life. It seemed as if I stood on the threshold of death. Feelings of guilt, shame, loneliness, and despair overwhelmed me. Without warning, my life had suddenly become excruciatingly unbearable. In desperation, I threw myself down on my bed, crushed, broken-hearted, and beyond hope. I didn't know what to do except to pray, something I hadn't done since that harrowing experience in my tiny foxhole in v on the killing fields of Vietnam almost ten years earlier. This time, I didn't negotiate with God, hopeless and totally desperate, I cried out to save me, <coughs> because I couldn't live another day, another hour, another minute, or another second under such an unbearably heavy burden. 
As I was pouring out my heart before God, I sensed this awesome presence in that room. I say this because it was as if God himself reached over and lifted the crushing weight of my shoulders. It was gone in an instant. Physically, I felt as light as a feather, as if I was floating inches above my bed. This was no hallucination. I was of clear and sound mind. What followed next was equally incredible. As I was lying there, I was being bathed in a river of peace and love. A peace and a love that it, it felt so wonderful. It felt so sweet. Something beyond anyone's comprehension. I didn't want it to stop. My guilt, pain, grief, and loneliness instantly disappeared. All my years of deep longing, the yearning for something which had seemed so mystifying, ended that night. That great void that I had been desperately seeking to fill was now filled to overflowing. That very night, God cleansed my perverse mouth and set me free from the bondage of sin. In a small, efficiency apartment, overlooking miles upon miles of lush green vineyards and distant mountain ranges, grace and mercy embraced and healed a wounded, broken heart. This, my friends, ends my story. To God be the glory. Great things he has done. Got one more thing for you. Our resident pastry chef and dear friend, very dear friend, Marie Roberts, has been so kind to bake two birthday cakes. Today's my spiritual birthday. I'm 40 years old. Please don't leave here today without filling your tummy with lots of cake and ice cream. God bless you all. <laughs>